Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you uh, this morning where we uh, celebrate the Lord's resurrection uh, from the dead. And so I feel a great obligation to say he is risen and he is risen indeed. And uh, I, for one, am very grateful for Christ's death on the cross for me and for God raising him from the dead. And this morning we get to celebrate that. We get to do that together. I praise God also for technology that allows us to be able to uh, make contact in this way over distance uh, via the Internet and things like that so that we can be together. And uh, so we praise God for that. Take your Bible, if you would, and open to First Peter chapter 1, uh, where Pastor Woody uh, read earlier. We're going to be dealing with a very great passage, not all the verses that he read, uh, but a couple of the verses in the beginning of that section. And uh, so as you're turning in your Bibles there, um, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer for just a moment and ask God's blessing on our time and give him thanks once again for uh, him raising Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we know that we are only able to do so because of the risen Christ because of what he has done for us. Father, we rejoice that we can come into your presence. We know that of ourselves, we have no right. And yet in Christ, we have every right to come into your throne room and to do so boldly. And we rejoice in that this morning. And Father, I ask your blessing on this time as we open your word and we uh, talk about some aspects of the resurrection of Christ and, and the impact that that has on us. Father, I ask that you would use your word by your spirit, proclaim this morning to work in our hearts, to change us, to cause us to turn our hearts and our minds and our eyes to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read once again uh, just the verses 3, 4, and 5 that were read earlier just to call our attention to our passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, one of the uh, effects of this plague that we find ourselves in the midst of right now is a growing uncertainty. That's maybe one of the most disconcerting aspects of the world right now is an uncertainty. And if you listen to some sources, they will say that the greatest threat upon us is from the disease itself and the potential loss of life and, and things like that. And so uh, this could be very devastating to humanity. And we need to do all that we can to stop the spread of the disease. And so there's a great uncertainty about how far the disease will affect and how expansive the plague will be and how many people will die. If you listen to other sources, they might tell you that actually the, the greater threat is the cure that we're applying to try and stop the disease, that actually the effects of uh, some of the effects, some of the efforts that we are taking to try and uh, halt the expansion of uh, the disease are actually going to be more devastating long term. 
than the disease itself. And so there's uncertainty there. Well, how expansive, how, how extensive will be that devastation economically or, uh, or culturally or whatever. And so whichever way you look at this, and I'm sure there are other ways, there's uncertainty. There's, uh, there's confusion. There's concern. There's worry. There's maybe even a temptation to, uh, to, to lose hope and to feel helpless in the face of this danger that we are in right now. Whatever view that you hold to in this issue, our future seems uncertain. And the things or the people that we hold dear to, uh, dear to the heart are in danger. And so that's the context that we are in. That's our world that we, uh, well, we don't go around in it too much anymore, but that's the world we find ourselves in right now. But today is Easter morning. It is Resurrection Sunday. This is the time where we, uh, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And there is great hope in that. And we find, we find a hope that is so far greater in the resurrection of Christ than the fear or the danger or the hopelessness that we find in our current plague situation. If you think about the, the disciples of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and the hopelessness that they felt. You see, they had met Jesus, and they had come to believe that he was the Messiah. And over the course of months and years, they had come to believe that he really was the anointed one sent from God who was to deliver his people. He was to rescue them. He was to set them free. He was to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into their lives and into their world. And they believed Jesus was was the one who was going to do that. And then he went to the cross. And he died. He actually did die. He didn't merely suffer. He didn't just face a tight scrape, but he actually died. And so their hopes were dashed to pieces on the cross itself. And so from that day of the crucifixion on until Sunday morning, their Messiah was dead. And it seemed to them that all hope was lost. And so when we come together today to celebrate, we can think about our own situation of of fear and uncertainty, and we can look at the situation of the fear and uncertainty that the disciples were going through, and we can see that, that ours are not insignificant, but they don't compare to what the disciples were facing. And so as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead today, It is a great celebration. It ought to cause us to rejoice. It ought to cause us to lift our hearts and even our song, our voices in song to heaven as we rejoice in this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see that in, in our celebration today, we're, we're celebrating Jesus being raised from the dead, but there's a greater significance that goes with that. If you think about those early disciples, what's, what's happening at the, the raising of Jesus from the dead is that, that God is actually restoring and he's even expanding the hope of those first disciples that they had a certain level of hope and a certain level of understanding in what Jesus was going to do and in his death and then ultimately in his resurrection. They began to have a greater, a greater hope even than they had before. And our passage today is going to talk about this inheritance. And so this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we're also celebrating the fact that God has secured our inheritance. 
He has, he has secured that gift, that inheritance, in such a way that it doesn't diminish. It can't be taken from us. It never changes. It never shrinks. But it's ours, regardless of world events and, in fact, regardless of even cosmic events. That is ours. And so as we look more closely at our passage this morning, Peter's going to argue in First Peter that the resurrection of Christ uh, is central and key for us in understanding this inheritance. That uh, that resurrection, this the inheritance that comes from us from that resurrection, is is greater than any sufferings in this life, and it actually provides the Christian a, a profound and invaluable gift that he calls an inheritance. And so as we turn to our verses here, we want to look for a moment at the giver of the inheritance. He starts off and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The giver of the inheritance is God the Father. And Peter starts off, uh, as he should, with celebrating and rejoicing in the Father. And this is nothing new with Peter, of course, if you think back to the first sentence in the Bible. You see that it is a sentence that asserts God's presence and working in creation. In the beginning, God created. And so Peter starts exactly where the Bible starts, with celebrating and rejoicing in God. God who created the heavens and created the earth. And we should start with praising God. We should start our understanding of who we are and even our understanding and celebration on an Easter morning with understanding and thinking about who God is. That in the beginning, God, it was not in the beginning, I or you or we. You see, you and I, uh, though we talk nowadays about who is essential and who is non-essential, and that's kind of taken on new meaning. But uh, the fact is that in the grand scheme of things, you and I are not essential. Man is not even essential. Only God is essential. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to make anything. He was always eternally perfectly content in himself. You see, God exists eternally as one being, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And those three persons of the Trinity have always been in perfect harmony with one another. They've always had perfect relationship. There's no discontentment there. There's no lack. It's not as if they got bored with one another. And so they decided they needed to create you and to create me so that they could have someone to talk to or have someone to love. They, they even loved one another and did so perfectly. So they didn't need us. They didn't need to create man, but God created man. He created man as the crown of his creation, as the very top, as the, as his image, who's, was to function as his, as his uh, servant in this world, like a priest on this earth. He created man. And so he has, he has created us purely by his grace. And then, Later on, he has provided redemption. He has redeemed people purely, again, by his grace. And so you can see that it's fitting for Peter to begin this section with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's praise for the Father is not abstract. It doesn't take place in a vacuum. He's not only talking about God in some vague term. No, he's, he's talking about praising 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He praises the Father as he is revealed by the Son. And this is crucial. This is an important thing for us to understand. I've, I've shared the story before about when we uh, lived in Chicago and I worked at a coffee shop. And there was a man who would come in and he would buy coffee and he would sit by the front door and he would take every opportunity that he possibly could to share with the people who came in and out, anyone who would listen. And he would witness to them is what he called it. And, and when I first met him and first saw him doing that, I was encouraged and I was challenged that he would have uh, such boldness. And he would sit there and drink his coffee and he would talk with everyone who came in and out about, about God. And as I watched him over the weeks and, and months that I observed him, I noticed that uh, though I was uh, challenged by his boldness, but there was, there was some tact lacking, but, uh, but setting that aside, what I noticed over time was the fact that he would talk about God. He never talked about Jesus. He would talk about loving God. He would talk about knowing God. But he never talked about the Son of God ever, in the months that I knew him. And the fact is, the Father cannot be known apart from the Son. He cannot be known apart from the Son. He makes himself known to us in Jesus Christ, his Son. Not in a vacuum, not abstractly, not on his own, but through Jesus Christ. Many people think they have a relationship with God. They talk about loving God. They talk about knowing God. They talk about walking with God or being God's child or something like that. But if they don't know Christ, if they don't have a relationship with him, with Jesus, then their supposed relationship with the Father is nothing more than an emotion or a figment of their own imagination. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, we read, No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how has the Father been made known? Well, he's been made known through the Son. And John comes at it from a different angle in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So in order for us to know God, we must know Christ. Because Christ is how God makes himself known. And so he reveals himself, the Father reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to a point of application for us to think about for a moment. That you have to deal with Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be spiritual in some sense. It's not enough to love God. Or something vague like that. You are either rightly related to God through faith in Jesus, his son. Or you are still at enmity with God. You must deal with Jesus Christ. And it's, it's my prayer that even this morning that some of you will begin to do that. That maybe you've thought of God in vague terms. But you need to begin to think about Jesus and who he is. So that you can know who the father is truly is. So that, first of all, is the giver of this inheritance. But what's the motive that God has for giving this inheritance? Very simply, Peter says that it's according to his great mercy. 
according to His great mercy. So first, let's look at His great mercy and what, what that means and what that consists of and what that has to do with us. You see, God is our Creator. And so since He's our Creator, we owe Him everything. Not just a lot. Not just lip service. Not just some degree of allegiance or preference. We owe Him our very breath, our very life. We owe Him everything as our Creator. And we were created to give Him the honor that's due Him. We were created to serve Him and to worship Him. God's mercy is one of the great things that we really need to understand about God in order that we can honor Him the way that we ought to do. See, the biblical concept of mercy has to do with a withholding of deserved punishment. In other words, it's not giving to someone what is actually due them. They are worthy of, they are deserving of, there is punishment due them, and yet by God's mercy, He withholds it so that they don't experience the punishment from Him that they should experience. We... uh we live in a world today where people are very quick to tell you when they're offended by something. That seems to be the greatest and most powerful uh, argument ender right there is that I am offended and therefore that's the end of the argument. You must be wrong. I must win because I'm offended. But the fact is that no one has ever been offended like God has been offended. You see, God out of his grace, not needing to, created the world And then from the dirt, from the dust of the ground, he creates man. Creates him in his image to serve a particular function. Creates him as the crown of all of creation, to to have dominion over creation. This This is his creation. And what does that creation do? Well, we, we know. You don't have to read far in the Bible past that first sentence to find out what happens that Adam and Eve are given instruction to obey God about don't eat from the fruit of this tree. You can eat from the fruit of all the trees except for this one, but don't eat from the fruit of that tree. And of course, that's exactly what they do. So this this being that has been created by God, purely by the grace of God, made from dirt, has now rebelled and thumbed his nose at God by breaking his commandments, by going against what God said to do. And of course, God is the creator. God is just. He has every right to crush Adam and Eve at that moment. And actually, he had promised them, the day you eat from that tree that I've told you not to eat, the day you eat from that, you will surely die. And so God, had he wanted purely to show justice at that moment, could have crushed them and would have crushed them. But that's not what he did. You see, they didn't die that day. They didn't die physically. He actually showed them mercy. He actually took care of them. He provided clothing for them. He made a promise to them. He actually took care of them in a time when he could have judged them. He showed mercy towards them. And he promises that he's going to send his son. That he's going to send one who's going to crush the head of that serpent who had brought temptation into the garden. That's the mercy of God. 
You see, he withheld the punishment that they deserved. He, he held on to it for a while. He didn't pour that out on them. And so we see that God is offended worse than anyone has ever been offended. And yet we see a great outpouring of his mercy in that he withholds the judgment that we deserve. So that's his great mercy. But we need to pause here and think for a minute about our great need for mercy. I don't mean ours as in mankind. Of course, mankind needs great mercy. But I mean you and I mean me. We can't, we can't let ourselves think that God owes us something as if we were essential. We're not essential. He created us purely by his grace and then we've rebelled against him. He has every right to judge us, to destroy us. He doesn't owe us anything except judgment. He owes us nothing except destruction. He owes us nothing but an eternity in hell enduring his wrath. Because just like Adam and Eve, our first parents, who, who chose to disobey God and eat from the fruit of that tree, you and I have gone our own way, haven't we? We have, we have chosen our own sins. We have done just like our parents, probably not by taking a fruit from a tree and eating it, but by countless other ways that we have rebelled against him. And so we find ourselves by inheritance to be objects of wrath and by our own actions we deserve the wrath of God. So we have a very great need for mercy. And so you personally need to realize for yourself your need for mercy because of your sin. And that's one of the first steps in understanding and believing the gospel and being saved is seeing your own personal need for God's mercy because of your sinfulness. Coming to understand God owes you nothing good. He owes you nothing merciful. And one of my responsibilities this morning on a Resurrection Sunday is to make sure that we all understand that. That God doesn't owe us anything. So what are the means of obtaining this inheritance? Look at the last part of verse 3 there. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again. That, that born again language is only used in a couple of different places explicitly in Scripture. In this chapter, in First Peter, and then also back in John chapter 3, we have the same kind of language being used. And in John chapter 3, we see that this man, Nicodemus, who's a teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus and does so kind of in secret, wanting to ask him some questions, wanting to have a conversation with him. And, and, and Jesus uh, gets right to the point with Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, the problem with you is, and the problem with everyone is, you must be born again. You see, Nicodemus, with all of his learning, with all of his advantage, with all of his smarts, with all that he understood, didn't understand a very basic truth that goes all the way back to the garden, that goes back to what Adam and Eve did. You see, when God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, they did actually die, just not physically. They died in a different way. They died spiritually. There, there became, for the first time ever, a, a separation between them and God. They had had open and free relationship before, and now there was a barrier between them. There was separation. 
There was a, a there became for the first time ever a hostility between Adam and Eve and well between one another, but then mainly between them and between uh, God. And so there's a a, a very uh, great reality in which death happened the moment they ate of that fruit. And that death was a spiritual death. And that led to all of the sin that you see in the world. And that brings us right down to us. That that separation, that hostility, that enmity between man and God, we've inherited. You and I have inherited that from our first parents all the way down. And so that we are born physically alive, but spiritually we have a hostility. We have some some sense in which we don't want God. We don't want to do what he says. We, we would rather make ourselves to be God. We would rather worship something else other than him, that we are born dead. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, don't you understand? With all of your great learning, with all of your memorizing, with all uh, th- that you have done and learned, do you not understand that you need to be born again? You need to be born spiritually. Yeah, you may be very smart and you're obviously alive physically, but spiritually you've got to be made new. That death that happened at Adam and Eve, that has to be reversed in you. And so Peter says here, he has caused us to be born again. You see, that that level of work, that level of heart work is not something that you and I can do. It requires God reaching in and taking that heart of stone that rejects God, that hates God, that doesn't want God. It takes God reaching in and changing that and making that heart new. And and a heart of flesh that beats toward God, that is sensitive to God, that is desirous to obey God. And so Peter rejoices here. He says, He has caused us to be born again. And by means of being born again, God gives us living hope. See, this is where we begin to, to flesh out a little bit what this inheritance is. We are born again to a living hope. See, the, the biblical concept of hope is not a pipe dream. It's not like, I hope this pandemic ends soon and I can find toilet paper on the shelves. Or, I hope life goes back to normal uh, soon. Well, I don't know if life will go back to normal soon. It probably won't tomorrow. And so uh, that is often the way we use the word hope. And, and that's not the biblical concept. The biblical concept of hope is a confident assurance about what is, even though we can't see it, and about what will be. It's a, it's a confident assurance, assurance that's based not upon my circumstances, not even upon my reasoning, It's based upon what God tells me. And so I have hope in what God tells me. This inheritance is uh, that Peter is talking about is that kind of sure and certain hope that becomes ours when we are in Christ. And Peter calls it here something interesting. He calls it a living hope. A living hope. And that, that doesn't simply mean a hope for life that we we hope that someday we will have life, or we hope that presently we have life. It doesn't just mean that. It does, it's not a, a hope that's merely that we will receive a life in the future. It's a living hope. It's a hope that is alive. It itself is living. It's renewed every morning. 
It's a hope that God by His Holy Spirit renews within the Christian again and again and again. And what do I want, what I want to encourage us with this morning is that the way He renews that hope within us is by us going to His Word. By us going and looking at His Word and being reminded of the promises of God, being reminded of the things that are true. You see, hope comes from what God tells us. True hope comes from His Word. And some of us, some of us don't really know that kind of hope. Or we see it sort of diminishing in us. And one of the reasons I want to say that that is, is because too many of us leave our Bibles on the shelf. Too many of us ignore what God has told us in His Word. We don't go to His Word and feast on it. You see, when we, when we go to His Word and when we feast on His Word, it encourages, it builds up, it gives life to our hope. So that regardless of how awful yesterday was, and regardless of the things that we are told to be afraid of tomorrow, we can find hope and joy and confidence in God's Word because of what He has told us. But many of us just leave our Bibles closed. Or we may read a verse a day. And, and we think that's going to revive our hope, and it's not going to. We need to feast upon God's Word. We need to go to the promises in His Word so that we can see this living hope be renewed day after day after day. He gives us a living hope. We are born again to a living hope. And from where does God draw this new life that makes us born again, that gives us a living hope? Where does He draw it? Well, it's through Christ's resurrection. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, when we look back at Adam and Eve and we think about the circumstances they got into, when we think about the death that they brought on, when we, when we think about the, de- the decisions that they made to disobey God's command to take of that fruit and eat of that fruit, to, to follow the advice and the, and the counsel of the serpent and walk away from God and uh, the resulting death, the resulting hostility and, and separation, we've inherited that. We've inherited that. It has deadly consequences, not just for them, because then they did eventually die, but also for us, we will eventually die as well. And in that context, that's where God sent His Son. That He had promised all the way back there in chapter 3 of Genesis, God sent His Son to be born as one of us. To walk in obedience as Adam should have walked in obedience, and yet Jesus did walk in obedience. He obeyed God in everything that he ever did. And thus, he, Jesus, was deserving of eternal life. So we inherit death from our first father, Adam. And in Jesus, now Jesus becomes the one who is deserving of eternal life. And so he's innocent He has no guilt of his own, and yet, being an innocent one, he goes to that cross. And he goes to offer himself up, not not against his will, but willingly going to that cross to pay a penalty for sin. Not his own. He didn't have a penalty that he owed. He had no debt of his own. He went to pay a penalty for sin, for all the sins 
of all those who would believe in him. And so he goes to that cross and he bears the wrath of God that, that I deserve because of my sin. Jesus takes that wrath upon himself and he bears it. And God pours it out in full. None left for me because it's all been poured out on Jesus. And so Jesus on that cross is bearing the penalty, the wrath of God for my sin. The innocent son of God becomes the one who pays the penalty for my sin. And he gives up his life in the process of doing so. And so that's what we call Good Friday. That's the cross. That's where the wrath of God is poured out on the righteous, sinless Son of God who has been made like me so that he can be my substitute. And three days later, when God raised him from the dead, Jesus is shown to be the victor. He's shown to be the glorious one who has overcome death and who has overcome sin that the grave can't hold him. And God the Father has been satisfied by the payment that Jesus has made. He's been satisfied that the payment was enough. The payment was adequate and the payment applies to you and me. Because Jesus himself endured death and yet his life was given to him. An eternal life never to die again. He's the glorious victor. So when he's raised from the dead, he now has life. It's not just a claim that he's making that, that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the resurrection and the life. It's not just a, a claim that a man made. It's a claim that God puts his stamp on when he raises Jesus from the dead. And so by raising him from the dead, now Jesus has this eternal life to give out so that Peter can say here, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope How? By what means? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead, never to die again, has eternal life to give as a gift, as an inheritance to you and to me. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And so this brings brings us to a point we need to think about. That you must believe in the Lord Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins. There is no other way that you can find payment, that you can find forgiveness of your sins. There is no other way that you can find life because you were born dead. Jesus is the only source of that. And this, by his resurrection, we see him being the only source. We see him being the one who has eternal life to give. Who can cause someone who was born dead to be reborn, to be born anew, born again, born from above and made alive. To be given a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the challenge for some of you this morning is to believe in Jesus. The the call of God this morning is for you to believe in Jesus. Turn away from trusting whatever you've been trusting. It will not hold your trust. It will not follow through. It will not answer. And turn and believe in Christ and trust in him and you will find in him eternal life. And so that's the call for some of you this morning. And in our last few minutes together, I want to look at the nature of the inheritance and then the security of the inheritance. We've looked at the means of how one receives it. What's the nature of it? What's it like? 
while Peter says in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the nature of the inheritance. And by the way, if you think about uh, the inheritance that you have right now or your, your 401k or uh, your portfolio or what you hoped to receive from your parents or something like that, your inheritance, how's it doing right now? I, I don't know. Um, that may not be a super encouraging thought to think about how that inheritance is doing, what you were trusting in for retirement. The inheritance that Peter is talking about here is of an entirely different kind. It's of an entirely different nature. It has, first of all, an unchanging value. The stock market can be a wonderful thing, and it can, can produce great results. And investing and things like that, there, there are very good ways to, to invest and see your money grow and put it to wise use and things like that. There are biblical concepts on that. That's, those are good things. But the fact is, the value of it changes. The value of that investment goes up. That's good. And then it goes down. And that's not as good. But there is an unchanging value to this inheritance that we have right here. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't lessen. It doesn't fluctuate with the economy. It doesn't grow, uh, grow mold and, and become worthless. It doesn't get old and it doesn't fade. It has an unchanging value. See, eternal life is actually eternal. And it is actually life. So that this inheritance that we have in Him, which is eternal life in Christ, doesn't ever diminish. And it's not as if anything internal or external would ever affect Jesus in such a way that, oh, well, the the life that I gave you used to be really great, but now it's going to be a little bit less because of some change. No, it's undiminished. It's unchanging. The value of it holds. This eternal life is life, and it is eternal So it's unchanging in its value. It's always as value. It's always infinitely valuable. And it's unchanging in its character. It's unchanging in its character. If you study church history, if you look at the course of events, and if you've been alive for several decades, and you think back through the course of church history, you can see that in a sense, our understanding, uh, the church's understanding broadly of what salvation is, of what the, this inheritance is, changes. It fluctuates. It changes actually in its character, in what it's basically about. That there have been times in the history of the church when the most important thing about this inheritance, this deposit that we have from God, is about kindness to others. It's about making our world a better place. Well, those are good things. We should be kind to other people. And Christians should have an impact on our world so that the world becomes a better place. But there have been times in church history, and even now in certain branches of the church, broadly speaking, even within evangelicalism, there is a sense in which the gospel has become about making our world a better place. That's what it's about. That's what the inheritance is. And so it's a, it's a social organization for us to work on cultural change, and that's the primary emphasis. But I want to say that the character of this inheritance that we have in Christ is unchanging. It has always been, and it will always be, 
about this aspect of us being born rebels. Born dead and in need of redemption. And that we can only find redemption in Christ. There are outcomes, there are aspects of that that are significant for the way we live life, for the way we treat our neighbors, for the way we treat those around us who are not Christians, for the way we interact with our world. But they are things that flow out of the central truth and the core of what this inheritance is, that it is eternal life. It is knowing Jesus Christ. It is being rightly related to God. It is being brought back to that place where Adam and Eve were in the beginning, where they were servants. They were to serve and worship the one true God. That is what the gospel is about. It, it is about us being rightly related to God, us being redeemed, and then there are consequences that come from it. But that inheritance itself is unchanging in its character. It is about us being redeemed, us being turned back towards God the way Adam and Eve were in the garden. So that's the nature of the inheritance. What about the security of the inheritance? He continues, this inheritance, verse 5, the second half of verse 4 and into verse 5, is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to note quickly, first of all, that it is kept. It is kept. It is guarded. It is protected. It is safe. And it is safe and kept because of God's power. God is the one who who retains that inheritance. He's the one who protects that inheritance. He's the one who keeps that inheritance secure so that it doesn't diminish, so that it doesn't go away, so that it is not in any way nullified. It is kept, it is protected, and it is kept and protected by God's power. He's the one at work doing that. And that, that gives me very great encouragement. That gives me hope because I know that if, if it were up to me to keep it, if it were up to me to, to retain its worth, to keep it polished, to keep it up and running, to keep it maintained, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I would be just like Adam and Eve. And it wouldn't be long before I would follow the whisperings of the serpent and I would take the fruit from the tree. But it is kept by God, guarded, protected through the power of God. And thus, since it is kept, finally we are guarded. Look at verse 5 one more time. Who by God's power. Let's go back to the second half of four. Kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is at work in you, Christian. Guarding and protecting and keeping this inheritance, keeping it whole and keeping it for you. So that you are guarded. So that you are protected. So that you are secure. And again, this is not an exhortation for us to guard it and keep it. There are other places where where we are to pay mind, pay attention, and, and keep our eyes on our salvation. We are to work it out with fear and trembling and those sorts of things. But that's not the language he uses here. He talks about God working to protect and to keep and preserve even in our faith 
that it is God who is at work to protect us, to guard us. This living hope continues to live. This eternal life that is ours continues eternally, always alive because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of what he has accomplished. He has not just made it possible. He has accomplished it in his resurrection. So when we look at our inheritance, when when we look at our inheritance in this world or our 401k or we look at the economy or the stock market or whatever it was that we were hoping would, would get us through tomorrow, we don't know if that will hold. We don't know if it will be there tomorrow. We don't know if it will be worth less tomorrow or how long it would take before it's nothing or or it might go the other way. We We don't know. But this inheritance gives us hope. This inheritance includes hope, a living hope. And so our final application here is that there is comfort, final and ultimate and perfect comfort only in Christ. And that comfort is perfect and it is protected. It is guarded for us, not, not by our faithfulness, not by our continuing and keeping it. It is guarded and it is protected because of God's power at work. And so there is comfort for us. There is nothing in this world that could be brought against us, that can take away our inheritance in Christ. And so for you and for me in this time where we look with question at the economy and everything else, Christian, my, my exhortation to you and to me is to keep our eyes fixed on this inheritance, which is undefiled and unfading, undiminished, kept in heaven for us. Let's keep our eyes on Christ and our inheritance in him. I want to close with a couple of quotes from a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. First of all, he says, and I'll translate a little bit because there are lots of words. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit old. Thus says a gracious soul, though honor is not, and riches are not, and health is not, and friends are not, etc. It is enough that Christ is, that he reigns, conquers and triumphs though those other things be not it is enough that christ is and then he continues we have all things in christ and christ is all things to a christian if we be sick he is a physician if we thirst he is a fountain if our sins trouble us He is righteousness. If we stand in need of help, He is mighty to save. If we fear death, He is life. If we be in darkness, He is light. If we be weak, He is strength. If we be in poverty, He is plenty. If we desire heaven, 
He is the way. And I would add this morning, and He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, don't take comfort from this world. It's not a very comforting world right now. But we take comfort in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We take comfort in what He has accomplished for us. That He obeyed so that His obedience, His righteousness could be applied to me. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin, so that I might receive forgiveness of sin. So that I might be redeemed, that I might be restored, I might be brought into right relationship with God. Father, we do bless you this morning, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great mercy with which you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't find comfort in this world. We don't find comfort from this world. We find comfort in Jesus Christ. We find comfort in the gospel. We find comfort in the fact that this inheritance that we have in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so, Father, this morning, this Easter morning, this Resurrection Sunday, we rejoice that we have a Savior who paid that penalty for us, who obeyed where we've disobeyed, and whom you raised from the dead to give us life. Father, we rejoice in that life. And I pray that we would go out this morning rejoicing in that life, that we would give you praise, that we would bless your name, that we would rejoice in Christ, that we would celebrate our risen Savior. Father, we rejoice and we praise you and we love you and we thank you and we ask for your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. He is indeed risen. And if you uh, need someone to pray for you, we want to encourage you in the next uh, half hour or so, if you would call the church here, we'll have someone to pray for you. The number is 775-423-3855. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Thank you for being together with us this morning. He is risen. Amen.